Hello, and welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a podcast about YA literature, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right, so this is a bit of an untraditional episode. It's our first one, so we're working out some kinks. And instead of addressing a book and a film, we're just going to get the ball rolling by talking a little bit about ourselves and what we hope to achieve and hopefully be interesting enough to get people to come back. It sounds like a job interview, but it won't be, we promise. Yeah, geez. That's <laughs> a lot of, we set up a lot of pressure on ourselves, haven't we? <laughs> Seriously. So why don't you start, Joe, and tell us who you are. Okay, so I'm Joe. I am a mid-30-something person living in Toronto, Canada, and I recently quit my job so that I could try writing freelance full-time, which is exciting and daunting, but it also gives me time to do things like a podcast like this. That's awesome. I'm brave. I'm Brenna, and I am a college English professor. Uh, I live in greater Vancouver, suburban Vancouver. Um, and I teach a lot of YA and a lot of film adaptations, so I'm pretty excited to talk more about those in a different context. And the nice thing about Joe is that he's going to do all the work and I just have to show up and talk. So true. <laughs> but this is why we're good for each other. It's perfect. And Joe and I have known each other since we were at Carleton together a million years ago. And it's actually one of the greatest things about this is getting to work with Joe again in a new capacity. I'm very excited for that part of it. One of the reasons I'm excited to do this with you is because your expertise is in the books and we're going to meet in the middle with the adaptations and then I have a bit of expertise on the films because my background is actually in film studies. Absolutely and we both watch way too much teen culture for people who are in their mid-30s so we have that expertise too. Oh my gosh it's like why can't we just let the teen years go? <laughs> because the teen years are where all the drama is and that's why everybody secretly loves teen culture even if they pretend they don't. Well, there's something about those teen years where the stakes are simultaneously so high and so low, right? And one of the pleasures, I think, of watching this stuff once those years are behind you is that you can vicariously live the intensity um, with the knowledge that this too shall pass, <laughs> you know, that you don't have when you're actually like in the moment. I agree with that 100%. And I think, and this is maybe a little bit personal, but that's sort of the purpose of this. I know that I didn't have the most exciting of lives when I was a high school student. No, me neither. So for me, it's also a chance to live vicariously through some of the, the more dramatic experiences that people have had. And we, we're going to be looking at some books and some films that have really terrible dramatic experiences, some might even go to so far as to say traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily saying I, I'm living vicariously through those, but I, I do think this, the sort of range of different kinds of topics that YA literature and films get into really speaks to that increased dramatic component, but also they're, they're really trying to tell the story of lives at a volatile period. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think about shows like Riverdale that are totally cartoon representations of young adulthood. They are so ramped up in terms of the pathos 
and the ridiculousness and the jingle jangle. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I also think of the ways really effective young adult storytelling does appeal across ages because I think everybody remembers the most significant moments of their lives from that time period. And there's almost always something in YA lit or, or film or TV that connects with you and reminds you of that, you know, even if your own experiences were mostly reading in a park, which is not that different from me now. I think that just means you're living your best life, doesn't it? I believe so. Okay, so let's let's take this back to square one. Where are we at with YA personally? You and I took a university course together on children's literature. We did. We took uh, Professor Lovejoy's children's literature class at Carleton. It's an infamous class. It is, because I think everyone takes it. Yeah, and and to be honest, I think for a lot of the reasons that you've already waxed so poetically upon, (laughs) I think a lot of people mistakenly took it thinking they were going to get really good grades out of it. But at the end of the day, I think what most people realize is that there's so much content to be mined from YA literature that people who just kind of read it and then pass it off as you know it's for immature readers or for people who are trying to improve their English language skills or that kind of stuff like these are all true but that also does it a disservice to say that there isn't just great content embedded in there and you know I took a lot of English courses obviously in undergrad I knew you took quite a few as well And my most emotional reads were definitely in that class. Like, I remember reading Jacob Have I Loved and just, like, bawling for the whole back half of that book, like, on the bus, (laughs) just weeping openly, you know, which is not something that typically happened to me in Shakespeare class. So there's something about the way a good story targeted to young adults can really transport you back to that charged, volatile hormonal period in your life like you can really viscerally re-experience that through good YA yeah absolutely the the good and the bad too that's true so I I love the fact that you brought up Jacob how I loved which unfortunately <laughs> we're not going to be able to do because there's no film adaptation of it what would a film like that even be it would just be oh my god how would anybody make it through I don't know so when we, we talked about setting this podcast up, we talked about a couple of different formats, and I think we'll probably have a standard version, but I do definitely want to talk about some of these favorites of ours that have never been adapted, mm-hmm. which is craziness to me. Yeah. Um, and I would love to do a casting scout and think about like who would we cast and how would it go and what would we want to see. Totally. So I think we should keep these on the back burner. So Jacob, have I love? Put that on the list. I used to teach it, and I I told one of my colleagues that it's my psychopath test because if you don't have an emotional response to Jacob, have I loved? There's something deeply wrong with you. My personal opinion. It's very fair. I feel like there's animal danger in that book. Is there not? No, that. Oh man, do you remember we read Watership Down in that class? Yes. That is a cruel book to me. <laughs> Humans read in a public setting. Also. A lot of that class was, actually. Nice man, mean class. It's true. But (laughs) I guess if you're thinking about books that give us lots of things to consider, there's something to be said for going after some of those meaner books. Well, it's true because, like, why are they still so effective? Like, why can you sit down and read Bridge to Terabithia or watch the film adaptation in your mid-30s and feel like 
a little kid who has just lost their best friend. What is it about, why do we respond? Like, why do we respond so much to those texts? And if you look at like fandom online, like of course there's fandom for adult media as well, but fandom is such a YA dominated experience. And those fans are not all teens and early 20 somethings, right? Like it's a lot of people invest a lot of time and energy into thinking about this stuff. And that's some of what I'm really excited to talk about here is when people do get so deeply invested in the casting of Hunger Games, for example. What does that say about all of us? What does that say about culture? What does it say that these are the texts and adaptations that are so blockbuster-y, money-making-y kind of thing? I just think it's really interesting. You know, teenagehood, like as a concept, is basically barely a hundred years old, and yet it is such a dominant force in the cultural conversation. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, definitely the fact that it's such a new thing, but it's not novel. Like when you when you talk to people and you reinforce the fact that it's still a relatively new concept, I found almost 95% of the time you'll end up with people actually challenging you on it or or being completely surprised by the idea because I think it feels so completely ingrained in just a couple of generations Mm -hmm. and I think there's a, a mythos to it where people have idealized what childhood is and how it should be innocent and so many of the narratives that really resonate with people or frighten people is when that threat of innocence gets lost or challenged or how do people transition out of it and become adults Mm -hmm. and how do you survive it i mean like some some of the most famous texts we read back now and say like well that's a young adult text like anne of green gables not written for young adults i'm Lucy Montgomery definitely wanted young girls to read it, but she didn't think of herself as a writer for young adults. That's why Anne, like, grows up over the course of the eight books, right? Or, you know, even you can look at how many adaptations of Pride and Prejudice have been so embraced by teen girls, for example. So we have all these things that came before the concept of teen that we tend to read back in and think of as, like, YA. And a lot of those stories are deeply traumatic. Anne's story is deeply, profoundly tragic and traumatic the story of her before she comes to green gables and that's like the most beloved heroine children's heroine of all time so this idea that youth was sort of sacred and then ya culture came in and made it scary is just super naive and infantilizing to kids who are living like real lives i almost wonder like you're hitting so many talking points i'm just like (laughs) checkbox checkbox yes yes thank goodness we've got a whole podcast series that we can unpack (laughs) in greater detail i think that is again one of the reasons why adults find why literature so interesting or why they respond to it is that safety that distance where you can go back and explore those kinds of of things the idea that they would be too raw for actual young adults Mm -hmm. to experience but then if you've got the distance as an adult you can actually go back Mm -hmm. and appreciate it i think to address the other piece that you said i'm so interested to read some of these older texts that are before that kind of definition came in and then see how they either get modernized or twisted you know we're, we're gonna have a lot of good adaptations and I think we're going to find that there's a lot of ones that miss the mark like they don't understand what the actual text or message is even as I say it I'm, I'm realizing I'm making it sound like the books <laughs> will always be better which is something we'll also have to unpack and address because I don't no, think it's always and, true you know I think the best 
thing that we and our hundreds of thousands of listeners can think of is that the text and the film are different things and they may have different goals and doesn't mean one of the goals wrong right the film doesn't necessarily have to be trying to be a faithful reproduction of the text in order to be successful i'm making so many air quotes with my hands but you're not my students and you can't see me it's fine because often when you're talking i'm I'm (laughs) nodding and i'm seeing myself nod in the window in front of me and i'm thinking guess what? This is not a vlog. You will need to actually say something out loud. <laughs> we are going to work all of this out in post. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> we are such baby <laughs> podcasters. So true. So I was trying to get to a point where I was going to say helping people to get a better sense of who you are as an individual because right now of course you're just a disembodied Mm -hmm. voice in people's earbuds I'm going to put you on the spot what is your defining YA text oh god that's a good question okay so I just said that it wasn't originally YA but it's been read back into it now but Anne of Green Gables was hugely important to my conception of myself as bookish kid who was pretty awkward and didn't really fit anywhere and yet gets to grow up to be like a productive and interesting human being. I like Anne. She's important to me for that. And embarrassingly, one of the most important texts to my actual coming of age as a teenager was Dawson's Creek. I watch Dawson's Creek every Wednesday and as our readers will come to know, I in fact married my high school sweetheart and I used to make him come over to my parents' house to watch Dawson's Creek every Wednesday. And you're also hyper literate. <laughs> you know what? I always got mad when people were like, teenagers don't really talk like that because I 100% fancied myself a teenager who talked like that. Oh gosh. I mean, we could do an entire episode just on the depiction of YA as seen through the Dawson's Creek so lens true. because it really does define maybe not even one, but definitely at least one generation of the way that teens are depicted in television I don't know and if film. John Green knows it, but John Green writes teenagers the way he does because of Dawson's Creek, I'm 100% certain. I wouldn't be surprised, although I say this having only seen the film adaptations oh of Oh my god, his. we're gonna do like a whole John Green episode. <laughs> it's gonna put you through boot camp with John Green. Oh my god, that that's the alternative <laughs> title to our podcast. It's a boot camp with John Green. <laughs> you have to go through Paper Towns... You have to find all the stars. Mm-hmm. You've got to die of cancer. <laughs> also suicide, looking for Alaska. Yeah, oh, no, Jesus. he hits it all. And all of those critiques of especially Dawson and Joey's characters on Dawson's Creek, this idea that, you know, this elevated dialogue and this like obsessive use of illusion. I mean, that's totally how John Green's characters speak and interact, which is why I like them a lot, probably, because it's very much my my, my moment of, of teen culture. I'll, I'll allow it. I I can totally see it. And not just because I knew you during that period. <laughs> that was when, when you knew me, that was when TBS was running Dawson's Creek every single day. And in third year, I straight up arranged my course schedule so that I could catch every episode of Dawson's Creek on TBS in the days before streaming. Okay, how about you, Joe? What's your defining YA text? Uh, okay, so this is interesting, and it's definitely going to be one where I'm going to make you do a speculative film Ooh. version of it because it's never been done, as far as I know. My really big defining YA literature experience was stealing Christopher oh, Pike books from my man. sister. And I'll do a plug for another podcast because there's a, 
a fun podcast called Teen Creeps that actually goes back and they they look at nothing but those trashy, pulpy YA oh, novels awesome. from the 90s. So they've done a bunch of Christopher Pikes and it's it's like blissful nostalgia going back and just Again, it's hearing adults look through this lens of depraved sexuality (laughs) and casual drug use and just, you know, murder, murder everywhere. But for me, it was it was one of those things that really helped me to figure out who I was because it was a solid introduction into things that frightened me. And I've since gone on to become my favorite genre is horror, which you've made me promise I will not <laughs> make you do I'm too much so of. I'm just so bad at it. I'm like, here's my critique. Joe, I was very scared. <laughs> <laughs> I saw 5% of it and the rest I was covering Basically. my eyes. Yeah, so, so I loved Christopher Pike for that because I was naughty and listeners will come to realize that I was the absolute most boring <laughs> teenager. So to produce that kind of feeling in me, be doing something illicit and something that my parents told me I was not allowed to do and just getting such a thrill out of this experience and very much living vicariously through it. So Christopher Bike continues to get my thumbs up. I I probably still read at least a couple of his books That's every awesome. year. Are they still coming um, out? No. He die? No. Is he alive? They, they do. Is he real? Is he a person? Actually, let's, let's rewind. Is Christopher Bike a person? There's so many questions. So he or she has never publicly identified oh, how cool themselves, is that? but it is most certainly a nom de plume. And what about the old myth when we were kids that R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike are the same person? Any truth to it? Oh gosh, I I have to say no, if only because I stand for Christopher Pike <laughs> and I do not for R.L. Stein. Which is not to say that he's not. R.L. Stein, I'm sure, is lovely. He's not, I think, a bad person. But for me, it was it was the books were too childish. I that's not what I was looking for. I wanted something that was more adult and more grown. He one of my very early experiences. So I blogged for BookRiot.com or once blogged. I had a kid and sort of stopped doing stuff. But um, for a while, I was blogging for BookRiot.com, and right around launch, I did a like a reread of some R.L. Stein books. And he like found and like retweeted our post. And that was like, that was one of my very early experiences Ooh. of like, oh, this is why blogging is cool. Now R.L. Stein knows I exist. This is the best. <laughs> there you go. And now this is just going to drive those clicks back up to that <laughs> post. And he's going to pay attention again. And then he's going to be like, wait, why are these people hating on me? <laughs> <laughs> Making cheers and banners and parades for Christopher Pike at my But expense. that's when he will unveil that he was Christopher Pike all along. <laughs> <laughs> Cue the conspiracy theorists. Yeah, so then I'm trying to think if I had a definitive YA film experience. I really got deep into teen films in the mid to late 90s. I guess the, the other thing that will come out eventually is that I am a big old homo. <laughs> so I often gravitated towards really dodgy romantic comedies. So I ended up watching a bunch of the Drew Barrymore Shakespeare light oh, adaptations, right. as well as, you know, Clueless is a favorite film of mine. But these ones that have a history based in right. literature, but they're very covert about it. Don't don't tell me that 10 Things I Hate About You is based on Shakespeare. Just let me watch the Julia Stiles. Heath well, and I'm super into that aspect of YA where texts that have really nothing to do with teenagers 
get reinvented for a teenage audience. I think especially, I especially am interested in that in terms of Shakespeare. Well, first of all, it's a brilliant marketing move because you know your movie's going to be shown in high school classrooms until the end of time. First start. <laughs> mm-hmm. Every time a substitute teacher gets oh, called yeah. in. But I just think it's interesting because, I mean, it's a huge plug for Shakespeare, right? These stories are relevant with usually pretty minor tweaks and adaptations to an audience that is at this moment of like trying to discover themselves. I mean, if anyone understood how to think through identity, it was Shakespeare. Yeah, 100%. I think, again, this is, we're coming back full circle to this idea of YA literature as a testimonial to the longevity of the kinds of ideas and the themes and the character types just continuing to resonate over time. Absolutely. Well, this is... This has been a nice, very casual, very free flowy <laughs> introduction to us. I liked, it. I liked us. it a lot. Yes, but I feel like we've identified a, a couple of different things that we're interested mm-hmm. in looking at uh, that we're probably going to be paying attention mm-hmm. to. So if all goes well, we're going to be dropping these on a weekly That's basis. And so we're going to be doing Stephen Chomsky's Perks of Being a Wallflower and the film of the same name that are separated, I think, by almost maybe more yeah, than a decade. Yeah, it's amazing. I had no idea that book was that old, actually, when I uh, pulled it out of the library this week. I did not realize that either. I think because I probably just read it Yeah, a few me too. Ago, no, definitely. So. I really like uh, temporal representations of teenhood, you know, like what makes being a teen different in the early 2000s than in the texts we're reading right now or the ones that I remember from the 90s. I think there's some interesting things about how culture shifts and particularly right now how quickly culture is shifting mm-hmm. yeah so we'll have to keep an eye on temporal specificities within the book and the film. <laughs> all right all right that's your homework <laughs> and everybody else's so read the book and watch the movie and we'll talk to you later <laughs> thanks everyone <laughs>